Thanks to Audible for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. For a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com/fool. It's Thursday, April 6th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer. Joining me in studio, we've got Matt Argersinger from Motley Fool Million Dollar Portfolio and David Kretzman from Motley Fool Supernova. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey, Matt. Happy birthday, Matt. Thank you. Thank yes. you. 32? Celebrate. 32, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, lets, it ends in a two. Okay. I'll say that. All right, good. <laughs> ends in a two. I'm going right. with 32. I think that's, that's good. Right. It's somewhere north of 32. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, well, guys, it is good to be here. And we've got a special episode of Market Fool. We're going to mix it up a bit this week. It's something I call yes, no, maybe so. You're each going to give me a stock that you're bullish on, that's the yes, a stock you're bearish on, that's the no, and a stock you're kind of maybe-ish on. So, David, let's kick it off with your yes stock. Yeah, I'm going with Electronic Arts here. Uh, I think a lot of people will be familiar with it. This is behind Activision Blizzard is probably the, the number two video game company. And for a long time, they've long dominated sports video games. So we're talking about franchises under EA Sports like Madden, NFL, FIFA, NHL. And they, they have 60% plus market share in that sports category. So they have a, a pretty solid lock there. And those franchises just continue to, to milk cash uh, as they transition to a digital model. And then those games have performed pretty well uh, on mobile as well as people play those games on their phones. Another reason I like the company is that they're breaking into the action genre within video games, which is the biggest genre within the video game space. They have a 10-year licensing deal with with Star Wars to produce video games under that Star Wars label. So we're talking about Star Wars Battlefront, a mobile game called Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, which has average daily gameplay of two and a half hours. So you think that's that, amazing? Mm, two and a half hours. That, yeah, average for for just the, the average person is playing that game two and a half hours a day when, once they download it on their phone. So and, and that number keeps going up each quarter. So just incredible. <laughs> I wonder what that means for work workplace productivity. Yeah, right there. That could explain <laughs> some weakness in the economy if we see that come up. Uh, but but they're they're launching a n- new Battlefront sequel uh, this year ahead of Episode Eight of Star Wars, which comes out in December. And as we have more Star Wars movies come out, I just think. That, that Star Wars opportunity is really big for Electronic Arts to further uh, gain share of that action genre category. They also have some strong titles like um, Battlefield 1, Titanfall 2, Mass Effect. So I like the, the company's position. As far as uh, the, the financials go, just really strong position here. $3.2 billion in net cash on the balance sheet. They're producing well over $1.2 billion in free cash flow um, annually. So really solid company, I think. And I, I like, I love the pick. I, it's been on my watch list for a while uh, in Supernova. I thought about getting it into our Odyssey One mission there. I, the digital story for video games is so strong, and I think Electronic Arts is somewhat lagged behind Activision Blizzard and Take Two and some of the other uh, gaming companies. Uh, they're still very much dependent on kind of the the, the console and the, and the hardware space, but. Once they make that tr- transition, they are making that transition. The I expect the margins are going to shoot through the roof, just like we saw with Activision. So, I think I think it's a great time to look at Electronic Arts. Yeah, their margins keep ticking up, and I think now about sixty percent of their sales come from digital, and it's just a, a really attractive business model. You can just keep milking these franchises across all platforms. You can uh, release new updates continually. You don't have to wait necessarily every year to to release uh, an update to a game. So, I think. It's an attractive business model. It's it's a well-run company. They had their struggles earlier this decade, but the new CEO who came in 2012, Andrew Wilson, has just done a great job turning the company around. And for the most part, just about any period since Andrew Wilson took over, Electronic Arts has actually outperformed Activision uh, by 
by some margin. Okay. okay, that all sounds great, but it can't all be sunshine and rainbows. So I've got to ask you, what's the biggest threat? If five years from now you're looking at this stock and you're re-listening to this episode and going, ugh, that didn't turn out too well, what happened? Well, I think with, with video game companies, the key is that you you want to milk your existing franchises, but if those franchises start to, to falter, if you can't refresh them in a way that keeps people coming back for more, if you can't maintain that player engagement, especially as you transition to digital, if, if you're talking about mobile games, the, the barriers to entry or the switching costs for a customer are, are almost non-existent. So you can easily go to the App Store and download another game. So keeping players' attention and engagement, I think that's the biggest challenge. So Electronic Arts has to do that with their existing franchises, keep them fresh. Then they also need to bring on new franchises to, to continue that expansion. So five years from now, if the company has been a disappointing performer, I think they, they would fail on either or both of those areas. Well, on that front, I have a prediction that Star Wars has staying power. I, I, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a stretch, but <laughs> I hope so. Okay, Matt, what is your yes stock? Well, uh, some of our dozens of listeners, I think, are gonna think I'm a broken record here, but I, I'm my yes stock is Mercado Libre. I've been yes on this all the way since sixty dollars, uh, and uh, I just it's one of my biggest personal holdings. This is uh, this is Latin America's big e-commerce leader, kind of the Amazon. It used to be called the eBay of Latin America. Now it's called the Amazon. Ah, that's my Latin question. America, which oh. sounds oh, I, I'm I'm sorry, but it, it sounds so much better. Uh, <laughs> the, but this is this is a this is just a phenomenal company in terms of what they've been able to do to not only capture the market, the e-commerce market in places like Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, but they've really solidified their moat by growing from just a marketplace platform to a payments platform to a shipping platform, logistics, cross-border transactions. I mean, it's it's just a very powerful company, and the registered users continue to grow, the number of transactions continues to grow, and they've seen growth just accelerate. Uh, and the stock from Mercado Libre, even though the business has done really well, the stock is actually, until recently, has been held down mainly because the dollar has been so strong against Latin American currencies. So they, Mercado Libre, reports in dollars, but they get you know most of their revenue in Brazilian reals, Mexican pesos, Argentine pesos, and uh, those currencies have all struggled. So Mercado Libre's results have haven't looked as great. But what you've seen over the past year, the dollars reversed a little bit. The growth has just accelerated from Mercado Libre, and uh, I. This is a company you're looking at a nine billion, roughly nine billion dollar company, following the same blueprint as four hundred billion dollar Amazon is in the U.S. and and elsewhere. And I just feel like they've captured the market to an extent where uh, either someone, something amazing is going to happen to knock Mercado Libre off its perch, or they might get bought up by. An Amazon or an Alibaba or some other big e-commerce player. So I just think it's a really compelling company on multiple fronts. And you mentioned Amazon. We used to always talk about, and I remember you yourself saying that it's the eBay of Latin America. And that's where I was going with my question because that used to be, you know, really helpful in making the bullish case. And now I hear that, and I'm like, well, eBay somewhat limited in what they can do. Well, the reason it was it was easy to call it the eBay of Latin America because it was just a marketplace, just like eBay. Yeah. They had payments, so it was similar kind of to eBay with PayPal. But eBay actually owned a part of Mercado Libre for a long time. They own about 18% of the shares. Uh, so they've always kind of been sort of a de facto partner of Mercado Libre. Well, a year, or about six months ago, eBay actually divested itself entirely of Mercado Libre. I was very surprised by that move. Uh, I, if anything, I thought eBay would actually step up and buy a majority stake in Mercado Libre and just take it over. But they decided to divest their stake, which is interesting. And that hasn't been a very good investment so far. No, not at all. I mean, I think Mercado Libre is up probably 25% since eBay sold. And so, but 
if you look at what Mercado the evolution of Mercado Libre, it is today much more like Amazon okay. than eBay. It's much farther beyond just a marketplace platform. Okay, so let's go with that. I want to I want to complete the sentence here, or complete the analogy. <laughs> Amazon Web Services, which has been a huge hit and win for Amazon. Amazon Web Services is to Amazon as blank is to Mercado Libre. Ooh, as I would say. As e-commerce, as as transactions online go to Mercado Libre, I mean, it's Mercado Libre doesn't have a Amazon Web Services platform, so it's that's not comparable. But where it's comparable is just in the sheer dominance of its marketplace, payments, shipping, uh, you know, consumer uh, affinity for the brand. All those things are just right in Mercado Libre's favor, very similar to Amazon. So there's still an untapped opportunity there. Oh, be by far. I mean, if you look at it's hard. It's hard to say this, but Mercado Libre, as a, from an investor point of view, I think Mercado Libre has actually a few advantages over Amazon in the sense that it's. Uh, if you look at the retail landscape of Latin America, much sparser than we have here in the United States. So it's not like Mercado Libre is competing with a Walmart or a Target or other mass retailer. It just doesn't exist. And then it's it's the user base in in Latin America is is far untapped in terms of people who are connected to the internet. I think. The latest statistics are still about 50% of people who are coming online in Latin America versus, of course, probably 90% now for the U.S. So, uh, on those fronts, I think you actually have an advantage. And of course, Mercado Libre is 2% the size of uh, of Amazon, so you've got a lot of upside there too as well. What, and it, and what, oh, what blows me away with Mercado Libre is the fact that their growth is accelerating even as Brazil is going through a pretty fierce recession. Some saying <laughs> borderline depression. Yes, Argentina, Venezuela. So the fact that their growth is accelerating despite those macro headwinds, it just makes me wonder. What will their numbers look like if, if and when the situation in Latin America turns around? Yeah, it's such a great point, David. I think that's the secular trend towards e-commerce that you're seeing, and Mercado Libre has just ridden that. Even though, as you said, the economy is in. Pl- I mean, it's it's hard to say a recession, like you said. It's a disaster in Brazil, Argentina, and elsewhere. And, so, and, and Brazil's done, their biggest market too, right? But they've done just amazing. So I, yeah. I I think there's just even the stock has just done incredible over the past year. I still think there's so much upside. And what's the biggest threat if five years from now the stock's lost to the market? What went wrong? I, I, at this point, it would take it would take a competitor on on the level of Amazon to make a major major commitment to Latin America. I just think at this point, Mercado Libre has just built itself too big of a moat. But that's what it would take at this point. I think it would really take uh, maybe a competitor like Alibaba could do it as well. But just want someone with some firm company with just mammoth capital to come in and shove Mercado Libre off its perch. But it'd be really hard to do at this point. Okay, let's move to the no stocks. David, what do you got? At home ticker H O M E. This is a fairly recent IPO. They went public in August, and this is one that I just keep scratching my head over. I'm trying to see, okay, what is appealing here? This is a chain of 123 big box specialty retail locations, and in particular, they're selling home decorating accessories. So we're talking about rugs, furniture, housewares, Bed Bath and Beyondish kind of. Maybe yeah, kind of a mix of. Bed Bath and Beyond, IKEA, Nebraska Furniture Mart—it's some mix of that, but they're in particular just focusing on that home furnishing segment. Their average store size is 120,000 square square feet, so they're about the size of like your bigger Target and Walmart stores. So these are not small locations. What what I don't get is that their balance sheet right now—they have 7.1 million dollars in cash, 425 million dollars in debt, and over the past year they've burned 81 million dollars. So what are they going to do? They're mm. going to keep opening 20 plus stores every year and <laughs> Why, continue to burn cash. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> the, the stores have been performing okay. Their comps are up three uh, percent. Earnings are growing for now, but I just wonder what's going to happen when we hit a slowdown in the U.S. I don't think people are going to keep 
going to the store and buying rugs and furniture. And when that happens, I, I, these guys have backed themselves into a corner. So even if they can pay down some debt, but they're, the cash that they do have, the cash that they do generate, they're they're putting that to opening new stores and then some. So to me, it just seems like they continue to dig themselves into a hole. They have no website or e-commerce. Less than one percent insider ownership. And <laughs> please and just, tell me more. Just the, the, <laughs> the cherry on top. When when they open a new store, they're often taking over the the lots that were abandoned by J.C. Penney, Sears, and Kmart. So it's just and, and they actually went bankrupt in a former life in 2004 when they used to be known as Garden Ridge. So it's just. I, I don't see this road ending in a happy place. Oh man! So, so I confess, when I hear all that, and when you think about all the struggles that bricks and mortar retailers are having, and not just J- the J.C. Penneys and the Sears of the world, but when you hear that Nordstrom is having a tough time, then you realize there's something going on there. So, I'm going to flip the question for you: If five years from now this has been a market beater <laughs> by some what, what, what <laughs> miracle, what went right? What went right? What happened that you did not see? I, I really the the only way I see this working out is if management for somehow is brilliant by opening up a lot of stores, even though they are burning cash in the process. If these stores somehow become so profitable and generate so much cash that they're able to to manage their their balance sheet, pay down debt, and become self sustaining in that sense, become free cash flow positive, then it could work out. But I, I see a, a hard time getting from A to B in that scenario. Okay, don't hold your breath there. Okay, Matt, what's your no stock? Uh, this this one is is I mean it, it's almost following the same theme a little bit as David and I think a lot of listeners might get mad at this one, but I Walmart I, I know it's it's a phenomenal company on so many levels and uh, you know what what Sam Walton did and what the Walton family has done throughout the decades to build this this monster retail company that is just a uh, it dominates so many vast stretches of you know consumer spending and what have you. I just my problem is I just think at this point they're too far behind. I think Amazon has established a the mass retail preference for not and not just for younger generations. I mean I think it goes for everyone. I just think the the value proposition that Amazon offers versus what Walmart offers is now so superior that I don't think Walmart can catch up. Now I know Walmart's making a lot of investments. They acquired Jet.com. They're launching this e-commerce venture capital company, which I don't know much about. But I mean, they're doing a lot of things and saying, you know, we're hey, we're trying to get ahead of the eight ball here. But I just think they're so behind the eight ball. They should have been making these investments ten years ago. And I think they just underestimated the the secular shift towards e-commerce in terms of the consumer standpoint. And they're now so far behind that even though by all accounts, the business is doing well and generates billions of cash, and they have such an amazing footprint in terms of distribution. It doesn't matter because I think what happens is the consumer today, especially if you talk to consumers, I think under the age of 40, are placing so much more value on their time versus the price they're going to pay for something. So it's more of like, you know, even if I'm paying $4 more for something on Amazon, if I can do it from the convenience of my home and it can arrive, you know, free, with free shipping in two days, that beats me getting in the car. Driving, parking, shopping at Walmart, driving back. So um, you think that's more generational than it is geographic? Because I still think that there are large parts of the country where people would much prefer, or they're in the habit of going to Walmart, and they've never used Amazon. No question, absolutely right. And and, and I'm and I, this is not me saying Walmart's going to implode by any chance. I right. just think I just think today. I mean, if you look at the stock, the stock is basically flatlined for for yeah. several years now, and I see that happening. And it's not quite. It's not quite a Sears story, but I do feel like five, ten years from now, 
we're going to look back and say, hey, you know, Walmart was once this premier retailer. It was once it had once dominated consumer mindshare. It no longer does. It's 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 basically shuttering stores. It's kind of rearranging itself. It's it's not the same company. And when you look at the way market the market is valuing these two companies, Amazon market cap of around four hundred and thirty five billion now. Walmart is half that. So it's amazing that the market is assigning twice the multiple for Amazon's market cap. The question is, when I look at those, is is there a scenario 10 years from now, five years from now, where both of these could actually beat the market? Is there room for both of them? Because we always seem to talk about Amazon and Walmart as it's a zero-sum game. I, 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 I just I, I doubt Walmart's ability to beat the market. I, even it, so, gosh, it feels like just yesterday we were talking about Amazon's market cap surpassing Walmart's. I didn't even know it was double. Yep. And, and Walmart's revenue is still quite a way ahead of Amazon. I don't, I don't know the exact number, but I, they probably still make twice as much revenue I think as Amazon. I think that's right. And I think yeah. as a percentage of overall retail spending, Walmart is still much, much bigger uh, than Amazon here in the US. But it's just... I just think they're so far behind, and and uh, you know, and I, I as ama- as huge as as Amazon is, I still see so much upside for Amazon from that four hundred billion dollar market cap. I see no upside for Walmart. Okay, well, before we get to our maybe story, guys, I want to say thanks to Audible for supporting our podcast. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original shows, news, comedy, and more. Audiobooks are great to listen to when you're driving, when you're stuck in traffic, or just doing stuff around the house. And for our market foolery listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Guys, I listened to part of a great book this week on Audible. The book's called Siblings Without Rivalry. I'm the father of two boys. Yes, there is some rivalry. There's some good, good-hearted headbutting. Not always good-hearted. And as parents, we're trying to kind of figure out the best ways to handle that. Siblings without rivalry has some great insights. One of the insights: don't compare. Resist the urge to compare. So I'm not going to com- compare the two of you. I am going <laughs> to ask you, and I'm going to tell you that you can get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial at audible.com/fool. That's audible.com/fool. You know what's amazing is Max, thirty-two. He has two boys already, and uh, it is amazing. <laughs> we, and he's talking to two guys that don't have don't have any kids. Yeah, it's incredible. amazing. It's we incredible. aspire to be more like you, man. Yeah, th- this is how controversies get started. For the record, I am not thirty-two. <laughs> okay, all right, sorry, I won't harp on it anymore. <laughs> okay, guys, my favorite part of this program is the maybe stocks. The stocks that you're kind of like, eh, I could go either way on this one. David, what's your maybe stock? So earlier this week, I think it was uh, Chris mentioned that there have been more retailer bankruptcies in the first three months of 2017, or as many bankruptcies in the first three months of this year than all of 2016 combined. So we're seeing a lot of wow. retailers going bankrupt. Whether if J.C. Penney is on the list, Payless, uh, the, the the shoe company, just announced uh, yesterday that they're uh, going bankrupt. So a lot of carnage in the retail space right now. And obviously, we've talked about at home and Walmart as our no stocks, but. Ollie's Bargain Outlet, ticker OLLI, is a retailer that I think could stick it out and actually benefit as uh, a lot of, of other retailers go out of business. What Ollie's does is they're a retailer of closeout, surplus, and salvage merchandise. The slogan for the company is selling good stuff cheap. Love that. And, mm, love that. And these are in self described, semi lovely, no frills warehouse stores. So this oh, is just this is simple so down home company. Semi lovely. So so what these guys do is they, they essentially go out on the market and if a store goes out of business or if a company has a product that they're no longer actively carrying or maybe the, the labeling change, or for whatever reason they can't sell it in the mainstream stores, all these will go out on the market, 
buy it at fire sale prices, and then sell those goods heavily discounted for their members. They also have a smaller private label offering. But uh, as more retailers go out of business, that should benefit Ollie's, because that merchandise that's still left in those stores at some point will need to be sold somewhere. So I think there'll be like a, a inflow of inventory coming to to Ollie's. Right now they have 234 stores in 19 states. They're expanding their store base at about 15% annually. Uh, they, they were found in Pennsylvania, and right now they're in the Mid Atlantic and Southeast U.S. They have two distribution centers that they think can support up to 400 stores. So they have a pretty clear growth path for the next five, six, seven years. What I like about the company is that they're producing free cash flow even as they expand. They're doing the opposite of what At Home is doing. So right now they're producing over $50 million in free cash flow. Co-founder and CEO Mark Butler owns 20% of the business. They're they're scaling well, they're paying down debt and increasing free cash flow. Really nice combination. And probably the most impressive thing about the company is that their their loyalty program. This is not a like you go to their website, Ollie's Bargain Howlet. If you go to that website, it is the least impressive website. I love probably it. Though. The, the I ugliest. went to it before the show. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's semi lovely. Semi lovely. Semi lovely. Yeah, to, to say the least. <laughs> On a good day. Right. <laughs> but uh, they they have this incredible loyalty program where uh, they have 7.3 million members in their Ollie's Army loyalty program. That's up 30% year over year. And those loyalty program members make up 65% of total sales. And that number continues to tick up. So they've developed a really close connection with these people who tend to be lower income, lower mid um, middle class. So I, I think the, these guys could stick it out. Uh, they, they, I think they, they have a better chance of avoiding getting disrupted by Amazon. Uh, they, they're cultivating this treasure hunt experience, similar to TJ Maxx or something. And Amazon, or eBay, Costco. Costco, yeah, sure. Got to give a shout out to Costco. <laughs> I, I just see this. I model. almost made a whole episode without mentioning Costco. <laughs> no, we, we got to throw it in there. But anyway, I, I, I like this concept. So far, it's been performing well. Their comps are growing one, two, three percent a quarter. Uh, Earnings, margins continue to scale. So, a lot of things going well. I, I like the story here, but my main question is Is this concept sustainable? Is it scalable? Right now, in uh, the Mid Atlantic and in the Southeast, it's performed pretty well. But I think the longer term question is Can that concept scale to, to the Midwest, to the West? And I think uh, that remains to be seen. Yeah, when you said, when you said TJ Maxx, I immediately thought of you know, TGX companies, which has mm-hmm. TJ Maxx, Marshalls, uh, and I, I thought, is this is there anything that's unique that makes all these unique from those companies, and and would an investor maybe be better off just going with the apparent big dog in semi lovely store you know retail apparel stores versus something like an Ollie's? I think the the difference for Ollie's is that they're not just limited to apparel, which is the main focus of TJ Maxx. They they have everything from housewares. They have a pretty big book section actually. They're they're, they're really all across the board. They have a good amount of food. So. I think that's their their benefit, and theoretically, as they get bigger, they should be able to get access to bigger and bigger deals. So it's kind of like a, a flywheel effect there. So that's why I see them maybe having some sort of advantage that's more immune to Amazon than we're seeing from most other retailers out there. I, I sort of compare. I put Ollie's right now. I'm leaning to putting Ollie's more in the boat of a tractor supply company or a yeah. Home Depot. Th- those retailers that are able to stick it out, they're able to expand. They have attractive unit economics, good leadership, and a model that should be able to continue expanding. So right now, I'm leaning toward that, but it's still in that maybe so category because retail is tough as as we've seen. But so far, they've managed to uh, keep putting up some good numbers. And it's got a market cap of around two billion dollars. So valuation wise, what are you thinking? The the PE ratio right now is above thirty. That that's another reason I'm on the fence right now. But 
in, in the latest quarter, they grew net income 50% as they pay down debt. Their earnings uh, continue to expand. And as they scale that concept, margins are, are improving. So, I think this is a company that should be able to grow net income at 20% a year for the next three to five years. So, the valuation isn't crazy to me. It's a little higher than I'd like. But I, I, I could see this becoming uh, a bigger company down the road, maybe doubling over the next uh, five years, if they're able to, to meet these targets that they have. And given, like I said, with, with the distribution centers that they have in place, they should be able to add another 150 stores or so before they hit the limit of their expansion based on what they have today. And Matt, what's your maybe stock? Well, I think retail's obviously been a huge theme this this entire podcast. I I'm going with Under Armour from Ryan. Maybe so. Uh, it's I and I'm I'm leaning probably towards the positive case than the negative case. But Under Armour's a company we all know, great great uh, performance apparel brand, suffered mightily from what we've seen in the in the retail market, North American retail market uh, over the past six months, maybe even longer now. Uh, had a really tough holiday season. Slashed their growth expected growth rate from 20% down to 12%. Uh, slashed expectations for profits. I mean, it was just a. It's, it's been a really bloodbath, I guess, for for Under Armour the last uh, couple quarters. And the stock is at a as deservedly so at a roughly five year low. So, but taking all that into account, this is still a brand <laughs> that I think has in tremendous resonance. It's doing incredible, uh, incredibly well uh, internationally and in the uh, direct to consumer channels. You've got Kevin Plank, of course, the CEO and founder, who's just about uh, as fanatical a leader as you'll probably find. And uh, there's just and there's value in today's stock. I mean, I think uh, you know if you if the if the stock can maintain a multiple of say 20 or 25 on the, on an earnings basis in five years, this is looking quite you know really like a bargain from today. So, a lot. I'm just in that camp where I just don't know how bad it's going to get yet. If the retail market continues to suffer. And Under Armour's distribution right now is still highly levered to the retail market, especially here in the U.S. If that continues to be bad, if people aren't going to the malls or aren't you know aren't shopping in, in the uh, um, in the warehouse uh, stores or things like that, it's just gonna, it's going to continue to suffer. And I just don't know how bad it's going to get before it gets better. But I do believe the brand has incredible sustainability. And if you're an investor and you have a long enough time horizon, I think today is is a pretty good bargain. And you look at the market cap here. Under Armour valued north of eight billion. Nike valued around ninety billion. So, what's Under Armour's biggest untapped opportunity? What's going to get them closer to Nike's ninety billion dollar? Well, cap? and Under Armour's already made tremendous inroads. But I think the for it to really get to where Nike is, it's got to become sort of the um, the visible sports jersey. Brand apparel company that uh, that Nike is. In other words, you know, if you if you look at the NCAA tournament or you know or baseball now, I mean, it's just it's still so dominated by Nike, Adidas, and we see it all the time. And that's what especially younger people want to be buying, and that's what international markets fans, sports fans, want to be buying. Uh, Under Armour's made some great inroads, and I just think it's a matter of time before they've got enough athletes, enough teams, enough sports. Uh, under their umbrella, that uh, it's just it becomes a much more recognizable brand, and and you know, people kind of treat it as one of the sort of the Nike and Adidas in, in that in those stratospheres. And and I like the Nike comparison. I don't, I'm not here to say that you know Under Armour could be a 90 billion dollar company someday, but even if it took 10 years for Under Armour to maybe obtain half the market cap of Nike, that'd be an incredible move for <laughs> not investors. Bad. Yeah, uh, and you know, <laughs> I'll I, take it. That, that'd be that might still be out there in terms of what they can do, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. I think they they still they still need to prove themselves with everything that they've done in connective fitness because in 2013 they spent 
over $700 million acquiring three different, essentially, fitness apps. And it's still not really clear if that's driving, obviously, it's not driving to, to meaningful sales right now because sales have yep. all of a sudden decelerated to a great degree. But the company's financial situation became considerably riskier, I think, as a result of that. They have over, I think, a billion dollars in debt right now. Their cash flow production is still inconsistent. So, financially, just from a balance sheet cash flow perspective, compared to four or five years ago, I think Under Armour is in a riskier position today, especially now that sales are decelerating. There's questions about the brand and those next steps, and especially with connective fitness, what that looks like and if that contributes to sales. I think that that is one of the risks I continue to watch. Definitely a lot of uh, yeah, outstanding questions right now. Well, guys, we will keep our eyes on all these stocks. Our yes stocks were Electronic Arts and Mercado Libre. Our no stocks were At Home and Walmart. And our maybe stocks were Under Armour and Ollie's Bargain Outlet. David, Matt, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this semi-lovely edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Matt Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow.